Hello and welcome to our first episode of Coffee with Curators for 2021. I'm the curator, Every Reviews Art Space, Brooke Marcy. And I'm assistant curator, Meg Weston. And just to remind y'all, Riverviews Art Space is a nonprofit arts organization in downtown Lynchburg, Virginia. We are dedicated to exhibiting contemporary art in our art galleries and making contemporary art accessible within our community. This podcast is just one way we hope to connect our audience with our artists. Mary Mihalik, who is our exhibiting artist, who is currently in the Craddock Perry Gallery, which is our front gallery here at Riverviews, and she'll be showing for January and February. Hello, Mary. Hi. Nice nice to be here virtually. (laughs) So good to have you here, and uh, so much fun getting to know you during install, uh, and uh, that is always a real pleasure when the artist comes and is is here to help out and kind of um, give us more insight on the exhibition in which we're hanging. So thank you for coming down to Lynchburg and spending a couple of days with us. Oh, no problem. It was great to meet you and the gallery space is beautiful. Okay. So it's nice to see your stuff up in person and watch the process happen. Great. Well, Mary, we, uh, we have a coffee-based podcast. So I'd like to get the conversation started with our icebreaker section we call percolator. <laughs> okay. Uh, first question, do you drink coffee? I love coffee. Yes. <laughs> and what is your limit of your addiction? Like two cups a day, three cups a day, none after well, I have time. a. I like the French press. Okay. So I do French press coffee. So it's usually one French press in the okay. morning. And maybe a tea or maybe one in the afternoon. But more than that, and I'm up all night, I can't sleep. All right. What's your favorite kind of coffee to do your French press with? Do you do, you well, do high quality stuff or? I do the caribou medium, but I really like the caribou wildfire, which has a touch of chocolate in it. But you can't oh get that very often because they only sell the pre-ground version. So you got to order it online. Oh. I haven't ordered it lately, so right now I'm just doing the plain medium, but I prefer the wildfire. Well, that's the next time I see that, I'll have to like... <laughs> I know, Meg and I are both on our phones like, okay, note to self. <laughs> <laughs> Get that wildfire. And uh, since you've traveled very often, we will get into that a little later in the podcast. Okay. What are some top coffee spots that you have been to? Oh. In Philly, there's a great little coffee place in Fishtown that has a wonderful atmosphere. Um, and it's like the hot spot there. It's very wide open and art, artsy and lofty, but I can't remember the name of it right off the, right off the top of my head. Um, I would say that might be my favorite one. Um, oddly enough, I think that like some of the hotel bars are nice for coffee in the morning like the soho house has great morning place to hang out drink coffee and work on your computer back when we went places and drank coffee and worked on our computer i really miss things like that i really miss being able to go out and have a cup of coffee and sit down and drink it somewhere yeah absolutely i've been to the soho house for uh drinks but i have not been there for coffee 
just lay back in the morning and relax. There's a new place in Chicago in my neighborhood called Haxton House, which is kind of trying to encourage like artists and writers and people like me to go hang out and work there. And um, it's beautiful in there and for coffee and just hang out. So, but you can't do that either. They opened and then COVID hit. Now you can't go there. Yes, coffee culture has definitely changed. Uh (laughs) It's hurting. And, And I went into a coffee shop this morning and I have to admit that you go in, you make your order and you leave as quickly as possible. It's just kind of, yeah. So those, so you can actually here still go to coffee shops, but they certainly don't encourage you to sit and to linger. There's no lingering right now. I know. And we had the biggest Starbucks in the world open in Chicago and Michigan Avenue right before COVID hit. So you go in there now and it's huge, it, but you can't sit and it's freezing cold. And so then you're going to go outside with your coffee. It's just awful. I have coffee at home now. I know I drink way more coffee when I'm at home, just constantly access to the pot of coffee. So, and, and, and believe it or not, COVID has made me, I've switched to tea. I, oh. I assume when this is all over, I will go back to coffee. But <laughs> I'm like, why did that happen? Um, That's strange. Isn't that strange? I was like, why? But now I drink tea. So. I tell you. Okay, so let's let's talk about some art here. Okay. Um, the first topic that I'd like to uh, talk with you about is the current exhibition that we have here at Riverviews, the the Running Girl series. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Running Girl series? Um, I was living in New York City at the time, and I guess that was now what 2014, 2013, when they were kidnapped. And um, the, the school girls in Nigeria, um, if you're not familiar with the situation, um, there was an area in Northern Nigeria that was being heavily um, taken over by what they call the Boko Haram in Nigeria. The Boko Haram actually means Western education is a sin. And it's a terrorist organization that's now part of ISIS, ISIL. And um, they, were just trying to shut down all the schools in Nigeria. So there was a, a school that was a boarding school, actually, as well as a day, we call it day hop. So I went to a school and I was a day hop, if you don't board. Um, in northern Nigeria, a Catholic school, a Christian school. And the Boko Haram showed up and kidnapped 276 of the girls that attended the school and took them away in trucks to turn them into you know wives and sex slaves and cooks and things like that. And um, at the time they they did that, it was huge news all over the world and everyone was horrified for these young girls. They were very young. They were high school and upper grade school level girl, age girls. 50 of the girls I read um, escaped by running for their lives. They just ran away and they got away. Everyone that ran away got away. Um, and I kind of hypothesize about that. I think about that moment where you're standing there and this terrible thing's occurring and you decide whether to stay or go and either impact the rest of your lives, that, just, that split second decision you make. To me, it's such a feminist kind of moment of fear and terror. Do you stay or run? 
Um, I personally believe that everyone that ran got away because they wear those crazy masks because I've been drawing them and looking at so many photos and they can hardly see. I don't know how they could run and chase anyone in those with those masks on because it's so hard to see. Um, I think through them. That's my gut feeling for why they all got away, crazy as that might sound. Um, so I was so touched and horrified by that because I went to an all girls Catholic school and I had been um, around Nigerians growing up. My family had befriended some of the members of the Ibu tribe in Nigeria and they visited us often in Chicago. So it really touched me. And I had just at the time moved into a new art studio in Brooklyn in Bushwick. Um, and I had new studio space that I was subleasing for the summer. I never had studio space in New York before. It was so fun. It was so freeing. And I put these huge sheets of paper on the wall everywhere and I didn't know what to do. And I just started making marks on them and drawing. And when I stepped back to see what I had done after drawing for a while, I noticed that the um, form, the imagery on the sheet of paper took was a person running. And I was like, oh my God, I was so, I got chills down my spine. And instantly I was like, I'm gonna do 50 of these, one for every girl that ran away. And that kind of started the series. Oh, fantastic. Uh, could you also talk a little bit about the materials um, that you use to create these pieces? Oh, okay, they, they change over time and they evolve. But um, I usually start by just, um, I, take, I take actually pieces of um, pastel, dry pastel, and I kind of shave them into crumbs on a sheet of paper. And then I kind of move my hands around and kind of just mark up the sheet of paper so it's messy. And I like it when there's like little remnants left of the, of the shaved pieces that are a little bigger. And then I step on them in my running shoe and I make footprints randomly on the piece. Then I put, they use magnets and I take the paper on and off the wall as I work so I can put more footprints on it. And um, as if I want more in certain spots. And then after I do that, I actually um, draw, I use oil bar and ink and pencil and I draw um, little imagery, little squares of like churches burning and terrorists taking girls and the girls going to school in backpacks or whatever's going on in the world at the time throughout the, the piece. And I wonder why I do that. Part of me wonders if I was living in New York City and you have little windows and little apartments everywhere and it's kind of landscape like city versus that. Or if it references to me like the Catholic church shrines and the imagery of the saints in the Catholic churches and the way they're kind of boxed and scattered throughout. I'm not quite sure why I do that, but it feels right, so I do it. Um, and then I kind of try and pull an abstract you know running image together i use um colored pencil sometimes to connote notebook lines i've copied actual notes that girls have taken in their notebooks and tried to copy their handwriting and stuff in some of the drawings um i use basically anything i have in my studio lying around um ink oil bar pastel charcoal um, I started going over stuff with those oil, oil magic markers a little bit, which draw or paint over any, anything and they're fully waterproof and they're my new favorite thing. Um, they tend to give it a, a little more modern dimension. Those are cool. One thing I can say that I've noticed, um, because your, your work reads, um, beautifully from afar, but it also reads those little windows that you put in there draw people in. It's really cool to watch somebody walking around the exhibition because they look far away, 
But then as they move in and they start to see these windows, they get closer and closer and closer and closer and, um, and, and spend more time. So, so it's interesting to watch people experience the work from afar, but then it's also interesting to watch them as they experience it, like really close up, like they yeah. get really close. I think it gets darker as you get closer a little bit because the imagery is dark. Yeah. And they're kind of fun and light from far away. And then you get in and the imagery is, is a little darker. Yep, they, it does. They get closer and then you can see their faces scrunch up <laughs> as, they, as they start to realize, you know, what these little, the imagery that's in the little pictures. Could you tell us a little bit about the text that you use? Because you do have text that kind of runs um, throughout some of the pieces. Um, um, the text is usually, um, I use a lot of symbolism. I was an English major, undergrad, and I love um, basic symbolism. I just love religious symbolism. I'm kind of fascinated by all the Catholic saints. And sometimes I like to connect the drawing to a specific saint. Um, and then, I, then I'll Google what their symbol is. Every saint has a symbol. And you can figure out like if you want to incorporate that symbol in the actual artwork. Um, so sometimes I'll, I'll write actually on the image, like for example, and they're all connected to what's going on, what was going on in Nigeria. So the one that says the red cross, I kind of put in, an, in, in one of the drawings as a cross. So it's in a cross shape, the way the text reads. Um, and then that's, that was actually a reference to Christianity being under attack, as well as the fact that the red cross at the time was working to save the kidnapped schoolgirls. Sometimes I'll use text going up the side of the drawing and I'll cut out the words like they do on the, like, like the holes are punched on the edge of a notebook. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll do that. Um, usually, the, and sometimes I will um, put phrases in that are relevant to some phrases that are read about, about the kidnapped schoolgirls, like the follow the sunset phrase, which is kind of woven throughout one of the um, pieces yeah. that you're showing, references how some schoolgirls escaped. Um, from the Boko Haram, uh, which is kind of also referenced in the movie, The Black Panther at the beginning, um, when there was this crazy exchange when the girls were, uh, the, uh, an Australian named Stephen Davis um, is very good at getting kidnapped people back and negotiating with kidnappers all over the world. He's famous for it. So he got involved with the kidnapped schoolgirls at the time. I think this was back in 2014 or 15, um, and had negotiated a deal with the Boko Haram commanders where he, they were going to release 60 of the girls. But the way it was going to work was they weren't going to tell Stephen Davis the location they were bringing this kidnapped girls to until 15 minutes prior to the exchange for money. And it was for money. Um, so they brought the girls in all these trucks, I guess 15 trucks with four girls in each truck to the location. And then 15 minutes prior, they told Stephen Davis where the location was. They believe that the mayor of the Nigerian town got wind of it during that 15 minutes. And he notified other kidnappers because there was so much money involved. And the kidnapped girls showed up and got kidnapped away from the kidnappers. During the whole craziness of the double kidnapping, basically, um, one of the truck drivers was a boy who had also been kidnapped by the Boko Haram. And he told the girls in his truck to go hide in the bushes and they did. 
So by the time everything got reorganized and everyone left, the, the original kidnappers did get the kidnapped girls back again in the end, but the kidnapped girls were never freed and the whole deal fell through. But the girls that were in the, the boys' truck did hide in the bushes. And after everyone left, they came out of the bushes and everyone was gone. So one of them had her phone hidden in her bra. She still had her cell phone on her. She called her mother. And apparently, I think they were in Cambodia. I have a feeling. No, they couldn't make, sorry, that's Vietnam, Cameroon. That was a mistake, sorry. Um, so they, the mother said, um, walk west towards the sunset. Just keep walking west every night towards the sunset until you cross over. So they did that and they were eventually reunited with their families. So that um, specific painting says follow the sunset. Um, and then I have the phone number I would have called incorporated into that artwork. So a lot of the text art references the situation in Nigeria and also references Christianity being under attack, the angels and saints, some personal things with me, such as my phone number and things like that. I do like reading poetry and I love poetry. So I'm a little influenced. I love text art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so do I. And, and I think people oftentimes hesitate to put text in, in the art because um, I think it takes away from the visual imagery. Um, but I think the way you've interweaved it through, it is just part of the visual imagery. It's not fighting against it. It is part of the overall aesthetic of, of each piece. So I think it, it, it just works so beautifully. It's funny, I had somebody walk in here. Um, this is actually even before the show officially opened. And he said, oh, he looked at the work. He had no idea um, about the context of the work. And he said, oh, this is such an innocent exhibition. <laughs> and I said, I said to go over and read um, the artist statement, which he did. But I thought that was fascinating because there is an innocence to this exhibition. It's, it, there is an innocence to these figures. And, it, and he read it and he went, oh, oops, I guess I really shouldn't have used that word. And I was like, no, I think you should have used that word. What do you think of that response from somebody walking in? I like it. I like the fact that the drawings connote that age. Yeah, that's, and I, that's what I was, I was hoping you were going to say that because I was like, I bet that's, that's all part of it. And that leads me into the colors you use. Is, are, there, are these just colors that are intrinsically in your palette? Um, or how did you work out your, your color? Uh, oh, I struggle with color. Color is really hard sometimes. So what I do when I'm struggling with color is I open up a book on Turner and look at his palettes and his paintings. And I'll be like, oh, look it, you can put a little red in here. And then I'll add a little red in. So that's actually how I handle color when I struggle with color. Oh, we love a good art history reference when oh, we talk on this podcast. And, and honestly, the minute you said that, it just, my brain went, of course. <laughs> you know, I'm lucky I'm sitting here amongst your work and I'm like, oh, well, that makes all the sense in the world. There's absolutely that atmospheric feeling of Turner with your pieces. Wow. Um, it's, it's kind of simple. It's a great way for anyone struggling with color and palette to just try and figure something out. Wow. Now, I had somebody, the person who came in this morning, and I said I was going to ask uh, her question to you. 
she said when she's like, oh, she must be, um, have, you know, I see a real influence of the futurist in this work. Wow, I would never think that. But <laughs> I, had, I had not thought of that until she said it. And then, you know, I started looking and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, one of the things I think is so fun about the, the moment we live in, in this period of time with art, is that I love the fact that things don't have to go together anymore. And right. that's so freeing. It doesn't have to match, who cares? You can use it and it can be whatever and it works and it's fine. It's so freeing. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's, it's, it's kind of like art doesn't have to be one thing. It can be many things with many influences. Um, what, what artists do influence your work? Uh, you said mentioned Turner uh with color but is there anybody else that you look to for influence or oh gosh um <laughs> depends on the day of the week actually um i love twombly but everyone loves twombly right um i can go over it. what i try and do actually is um when i buy an art book i make myself buy an art book on an artist i never heard of before oh because it's really easy, I think, to get stuck in, oh, I love this artist. I'm so obsessed with this artist. And so then I start learning about um, other artists and it expands my vocabulary and expands my thinking so much more. So sometimes I end up like, that was a, that was a really bad purchase. And other times I love it. Like I didn't know about Tony Orsler until I was like in the MoMA bookstore and I opened a book on him and I was like, wow, like who's this guy? So that's kind of what I try and do when I buy art books and keep expanding. Um, so I think the answer to that is kind of just the mood I'm in. It's like the, the your favorite movie is the next movie. I think one of the favorite things that, that I find about art in general is that when you go into a gallery and you see you fall in love with an artist you've never heard of or seen before. I think that's such a great experience. So I try and just keep my eyes and ears open and try and look at what, what's new out there. In a similar kind of vibe, I downloaded an app that shares a new featured painting every day. Really? And a lot of them I've never heard of. You see a lot of the classics too mixed in. Uh -huh. uh, but it was just something to like, you know, what else is out there? And since it's, um, I think it's a European-based company putting it together there's a lot of polish artists that i've never heard of in it there's a lot of museums in europe that sponsor them and to get featured that i've never heard of so yeah same kind of thing without probably spending money on books about exactly. them. <laughs> cheaper i did buy the, the premium app though because it was like <laughs> five bucks just to get everything unlocked so that was worth it but yeah not a sponsor but <laughs> Yeah, no, I do the same thing with Art 21s. I always just go on and pick somebody I don't know. Oh, I never think to do that. I need to yeah. try that up more. Yeah. yeah, try that. It's like, I don't know this person. I'll watch this Art 21. This will, you know, I, I try yeah. to uh, introduce. But you're, I loved it when you said, because there is nothing like walking into a gallery and meeting a new artist. I mean, it's always fun to go and see your old friends. And I call old friends, you know, the, the paintings that I love in, in, in museums and in, in especially more museums and galleries. But 
there's nothing like meeting a new friend. <laughs> there is nothing like it. And it's so refreshing. It's like, look at this gallery, took a risk. They're showing someone that no one's ever heard of. I, I just love it. It's new energy. Sometimes you, you feel like you go to places to like, sometimes you can go into Chelsea in New York City and walk the whole neighborhood and just feel like you didn't see anything that was unusual and it all starts to blend. And it's so fun when you just get that total wow moment. I know, if you walk in and you're like, oh, what's it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I absolutely uh, agree with you. Um, where do you see this series going? Are you, where, where's your, where do you see it going next? Oh, that's a good question. I don't see it stopping. I see it continuing on in different formats. Um, it might go onto Canvas, I'm not sure. Every time I try to get onto Canvas, I get a little blocked. I think there's just this added huge art world pressure when I switch to Canvas. Um, I see it moving into America and becoming more about American issues right now. Um, I think the Boko Haram situation, all the girls have pretty much been freed and that's been pretty much resolved. I do see it moving into America. I see some similarities with some of the extremist political groups in the United States um, to the Boko Haram and what happened there. I think it's very interesting. If you go to that area of Nigeria and you read about it, nine, it's like 95% of the people have never been to kindergarten. Ooh. So there really no education there. And there's no schools because the Boko Haram was destroying them all. And I believe it's really easy for these extremist groups to kind of brainwash people that haven't really been taught critical thinking. Um, and I think it's easier for them to recruit terrorists if they haven't been really taught how to think critically or think for themselves. So the lack of education in schools in Nigeria is such, it's, it's an enormous problem and you we kind of read about the problem now and you hear about people building schools in Nigeria, but I don't think people understand how actually bad the situation is in the area where the Boko Haram was able to infiltrate and really, really recruit terrorists. Well, who, as the series does move to a new topic, who, what figures are you looking to incorporate? Who is going to be the next Girl, oh, I always take notes and then I forget. Like I'll read a paper. Like I love, I love the um, the surfer woman. You know the woman that surfed the biggest wave in the world, and then okay. they believe she did it and she had to prove she did it. Like I like that whole story. So I'm definitely going to do a surfer woman one because that's just crazy. It's like the woman that discovered the black hole. The same kind of thing. These women that do these great things and then they they have to prove it. Yeah. Um, uh, Jill Biden, not, them not wanting to call her doctor. Those are some of the things I'm thinking about the future ones. Mm -hmm. So American women that are really fighting or do great achievements, yet they're trying to be discounted. I remember in my MFA program at Parsons, we watched this movie and it was called Painter's Painting. And I've tried to find this specific movie. There's another movie called Painter's Painting that wasn't this one. And it's an interview with all of the ABAX expressionist painters Ooh. back in the um, 70s, late late 60s, early 70s. And so we watched it and it, you know, you're watching Jack, you're watching, um, you know, all of, the, all of the, the, the painters talk. And then they hit um, the woman painter. I think it was Helen Frankenthaler. 
maybe. <laughs> and she opens her, so opens her talk with how she was educated, her experience, her skills, where she went to school, where her grad school was. She had to prove that she was worthy of being there. And I noticed it right away. All the, all the men were on their ladders, drinking bourbon, chatting away about their art and their lives. But yet the woman gets on and she has to justify her existence for being there by talking about her background and proving and giving her resume. And that really struck me at the moment as something that it, 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 I still feel that way. I still feel like women have to give their resumes and prove, and prove their worthiness. And um, I, think, I, I think I mentioned to you guys, I'm doing this art, I'm trying to organize this art show called 47.6, yeah. which is based on the fact that art sold by women sells for 47.6% less than art sold by men. Um, the art critic Benjamin Sutton is where I got that stat. Um, so I wanted to have all women in it, give a woman 100% of the sale of the art, get sponsors to pay for the um, show, and then you know sell tickets. But when you look at those statistics, like I think it was the Brooklyn Museum or one of the museums that said they were only gonna buy art by women this year. And I thought, well, that's really interesting, but are they paying the same prices as they did for the male? Is the budget the same? Are the, are, is each artist getting the specific same amount of money that you gave to each specific man, or is it a match? Or are you just getting a sale price here? Like what's really going on behind the scenes? And that was never discussed by anyone. Hmm. Interesting. The second half of that story. Absolutely. Um, I agree. I always feel like I have to prove myself. I think, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, and, <laughs> and still what drives me nuts. And, and you went to a girl's school in high school. I went to a girl's uh, school in high school. Um, how, and I'm noticing this now and it's driving me a bit nuts. Um, how when a man enters the conversation, everybody turns to him. Oh. And it still happens. All the time. Or this is really interesting. I, my sister was in this women's coffee group, okay? She's, she's a lawyer. And um, so she met with all these women lawyers and they have this like networking thing. And they had a Zoom meeting and then a man wanted to get involved. So they let a man in. But she was so annoyed because he dominated the whole meeting. And she was like, he took it over and he just hijacked it. And it drove her crazy. And I was like, that sometimes is what happens. It, it, it absolutely, it absolutely is. Yes, I'm on a board right now with where exactly that thing happened. A man, there was mostly women on the board and a man joined the board. Guess who does all the talking? Right. And everybody just pretty much does what he says. And I'm like, people, women. <laughs> I know. I, I think we just have to keep reminding people that this still exists and this and, is a problem. And I find that when you try and talk to people in there, like in, just out of college, they don't believe me. They don't believe me. They're like, oh, interesting. And I'm like, why don't you believe me? Like, are you so young? You haven't experienced this yet, but it's real. That could be it. I'm not right out of college, but I'm the millennial in the room. So it's kind of uh, like, oh no, I definitely see that too still happening. But the people right out of college aren't seeing it. And that's interesting. No, they're not seeing it at all. Hmm. Maybe it's, maybe they're right. Maybe times have changed or, or, I don't know. 
I don't know, hoping to, maybe their generation will not sit at a, at a, at a, at a Zoom meeting and realize that the, the man in the room is dominating the conversation and all these very intelligent women who have fabulous ideas have all of a sudden become silent. And that just keeps the status quo the same. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, it really does. Since we're on the topic of social <laughs> norms and gender roles, um, like I said, I'm a millennial and have been taught by the other women in my life that that is a thing that has happened throughout generations. Uh, and I have made little tweaks to myself over time to combat that. Uh, like I will not move out of the way of a man in a grocery ah. store or a, a sidewalk, even if he's moving faster than me. Uh, and I'd like, I always think about that when people start talking about things like, I wonder if like that even makes a difference and if kids now think that way too, that well, I call them kids, but they're definitely adults if they're out of college. But like, just what are they, what is that equivalent to them that they're like, I made a difference because I didn't move out of the way to someone else's will or something. Um, but that's really interesting. Well, you're standing your ground and that's what we, women need to stand their ground. Uh, I um, ran, the Boston Marathon years ago. And when I was training for the marathon, someone said to me, when you train, you never step out of the way for other runners. You hold your line. Because every time you step out of the way, you're adding more steps. So you, want, you don't want to do that. You want to minimize the 26.2 miles, right? So when I trained, I wouldn't move out of the way. And the men running towards it, so, so it was in Boston at the time and they have like narrow dirt paths that get worn down next to the sidewalk that everyone runs on, but there's, they're only, only wide enough for one person. So when people are running towards you and you're running at them, someone's gonna have to move out of the way. And I stopped moving out of the way and it drove the men crazy. I noticed it every time. I, it was like a game of chicken. I just wouldn't do it. Cause like, that was my new thing. It does turn into a game of chicken, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It couldn't stand it, but I was the one moving. Yeah, but but isn't that wonderful that eventually I bet they all moved. <laughs> they all moved. I never did. Right. <laughs> Usually they do move. Usually they end up moving. a little power game. <laughs> yeah, we all do that. We need our we need to we need to get our power here there. We need to hold our line. Yeah, I we think the, um, the other thought I had on that um, with just with how things don't have to match anymore in the cold contemporary art thing, I feel like. Um, as an artist, it's really easy to get pigeonholed, kind of, to be like, oh, now that I'm doing this, I better not veer from this and try something totally different. Um, so I like to like, I just like to not limit, put any limitations on what I can do, any creative wise or really any wise. And I think that, and it feels like sometimes men are more freer to do that than women are um, in, in a lot of ways. For example, you know, I'll do totally different kinds of art. Like when I bought that Trump bus, we bought the Trump bus, we turned it into an anti-Trump bus and drove it around the country. That's completely different than this kind of drawing and painting. But I love engaging and trying to participate in all the different kinds of art you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's interesting to see how one then influences the other. And it's, it's freeing, like when we did that bus, we did all sorts of things every day and just did art around that bus all the time. 
And we were so free. We didn't care what it looked like in the end. Like one day we took, we, we stole Trump signs from people's yards. And then actually that's a big Trump sign behind me. We got in New Hampshire um, that, that I covered with images of the Women's March and footprints and some stuff like that. Um, so we, and I, we just wrapped the little yard signs in black fabric to make them look like they were wrapped in burkas. And you could see the Trump name kind of through the eyes. And we just put them out around the bus one day. And we just did stuff on the spot all the time, really quick and easy. Like we were driving and we're, we're talking about, you know, the birther movement and how he was going after Obama and Cruz then and everyone else. And so we were listening to Bruce Springsteen. I was like, birthed in the USA. Let's do it the bumper sticker for the back of the bus that says birth in the USA. So we just like, I whipped out the design. We picked it up at the fast signs down the road. We threw it on the back of the bus. And it was so fun to just not be limited at all in what you were doing and not judge it and just do it and have it work or not work. And so there was this huge element with the bus where it was so unusual as an artwork that it freed us up not to judge what we did and to just experiment and do all these things with it. Oh, excellent. Yep, that was one of my questions. One of my questions was to ask you to talk about T-Rut, the Trump bus and the embroidered flag. Oh yeah, the yeah. embroidered flags were part of that whole experience. So the bus was interesting because when we first bought the bus, we bought the bus in, I saw that the bus was for sale on TV in October of 2015. So Trump had just announced he was running in June of 2015. So then he used his campaign bus in Iowa at the state fairs in the summer, because I was the first state. It used to be the big state. Now, I guess after the last primary, they're no longer. Um, so I saw on TV that it was for sale on Craigslist on Rachel Maddow. So I immediately was like, oh my God, can you imagine? But she had the price wrong. And she said it was $175,000. So no one called, but I saw it and I called my friend David who was doing anti-Trump art at the time and is, went to Princeton. He's a real estate developer in Philly. I'm like, he's got money, let's call. So I call him and he's in Philly, I'm in Chicago and we're talking on the phone and he's like, well, how much? And I'm like 175,000. He's like, that doesn't sound right. And so what happened we think is that they had put the comma in the wrong place on the teleprompter and it was 17,500. Oh. That's our wow. That's what we think happened. So no one called. No one called about the bus but us, because David was like, that doesn't sound right. So David then called the first reporter that covered the story, which was the Des Moines Register reporter, and he told him the right price. So then we flew out, saw it, and then the, the guy said, We're, I won't take a penny less than 14000 for it. And we had done the blue book research and knew that we could use it for a month and just resell it for exactly what we paid for it in a month because it was blue book value, so no loss. So we thought we were gonna use the bus for like a month and have fun with it. And then when he dropped out, sell it. Well, he never, then he kept winning and we're like, what are we doing with this bus? It's crazy. So the one month road trip turned into like, you know, a year and a half on the road with the bus. Um, so the whole, the whole bus, getting the bus, having the bus, and the nice thing, I think that what happened is when, when we first went out on the Trump bus, David and I are the, are, you know, I was like, what's, how old? I was approaching 50 at the time and David was, you know, a, a few years older than me. So being in our late forties and early fifties, the Trump, and we're white, which is a huge deal because when you go to a Trump rally, if you're kind of conservative looking, 
conservative dressed, you're white. People are not intimidated to talk to you. Right. So we show up in this bus that everyone thinks is a pro-Trump bus, and then they read it, and it says, make fruit crunch great again, instead of make America great again. Everyone starts laughing, and they're like, what is this? So you have this instant connection with Trump supporters and a great laugh, and all of a sudden you're engaging in this great dialogue with them that doesn't involve any tension at all. So this experience of being able to connect with all of these Trump supporters in the beginning was so nice and it was really joyful and it was full of laughter and it was amazing. And I think part of that is because David and I are both white and we both look like them. So they were more open to us. We also never said we were protesters. We, We only said we were artists. We're artists and this is our artwork. And so that immediately made us more approachable so we never ever use the word protesters and we always said artists and then people are always intrigued like oh this is art you know why is this art what makes this art and then you know we started adding things that were more relevant to the discussions so then one of the things we did one of the many artworks we did is um i started sewing um trump quotes and tweets onto american flags i brought my sewing machine on the bus and was start just started sewing the crazy things he said on the flags you know the blood coming out of her everywhere or the john mccain's not a war here i like people that weren't you know waterboarded or tortured all of his all of his quotes um in our neon yellow color which we were wearing at the time before everyone was wearing neon yellow um and then we'd hang them up around the bus when we pulled into rallies and they would bring the people over and it's interesting because when you're in the great Plains states which i didn't realize everyone sews. So we'd open up the window and I'd have my sewing machine out, even though I'm technically desecrating the flag and sewing quotes on it, people would come over and not think that at all. They'd say, what kind of sewing machine is that? And I'd be like, oh, I'm connecting with these people over sewing. I'm sorry, my thing is going weird. Um, I I apologize for that. So I'm connecting with these people over what kind of sewing machine this is. And then I would go into, you know, what what the flags are about. So we'd have this discussions about what they thought or what quote would they put on an American flag. So we did that. We did that at all the rallies, too. We did all these things and we look we thought of them as props and ways to engage people in peaceful dialogue. That's how we looked at it. And it worked. It worked great. The whole experience was wonderful until Ted Cruz dropped out. The minute Ted Cruz dropped out, uh, it was, we had to be Hillary supporters because we, we weren't necessarily pro-Hillary. We could have been pro-Cruz. We were just anti-Trump. But the minute Ted Cruz dropped out, then we were pro-Hillary. And then things went downhill and everyone started to get really tense and people started to get angry and it, had, it lost the joy that it had before, before Cruz dropped out. And so then back to the flags, we were in a, an antique store in Southern California a vintage big farm, you know, house kind of antique. And we found this big old flag, a huge American old flag that had been worn out. And I held on to it. And I held on to it because I was like, I'm gonna wait to see what quote goes on this big flag. And then he said the grab him by the pussy thing the month before the election. I was like, done, so glad I waited. Thank you. This is what's going on this flag. And it's fantastic. That flag is huge. So I tend to like with this Trump, I have a huge Trump sign. Like I said, I have another one that I haven't put anything on because I've been waiting to decide what's going to go on the second Trump sign. And now I'm like, well, the insurrection, that's so easy. I'm so glad I held on to it for four years, waiting to see what was going to go on it. So now I know what I'm going to do with that. So I think that as an artist, you kind of have to wait for the right time and hold on to things until it feels really right what you're going to do with it. And if it doesn't feel right, just hold off and wait. Yeah. 
and eventually it will happen. <laughs> so we were going to take the Trump bus out. We were contemplating taking it out a month ago, you know, going to DC and doing this whole moving thing with the bus and cover it and moving boxes oh, oh and all that stuff. And it would have been spectacular. So we had talked about it because we haven't brought the bus out because first off, it costs money. It hasn't passed inspection. We don't have it insured anymore because it's been parked for a couple of years. Um, because so we were going to do it and we talked about it and thank God we didn't actually really execute it because we couldn't have gotten near Washington DC with everything happening. No. Mm -mm. Yeah. But we actually stopped using the bus because when, when Trump, we, we were at so many rallies and right before, and there weren't that many protesters at the rallies. We were surprised, like, you know, they, they, there were big rallies at high schools and colleges, and those ones got the big crowds. But if he just did a rally that wasn't at a high school or a college, there weren't that many protesters. Like, we were in South Carolina three days before the election at a Trump rally, and we were the only protesters there. I was like, where is everyone? No one's here. This is really weird. Everyone assumed he was, that he was going to lose. So when he won, the day after he won, you know, we changed the bus the day after he won. And then drove it, drove it back. And then we went to a couple events after the election, but we really felt like it was just a love fest then. We weren't saying anything. We weren't engaging in any dialogue with anyone that had different opinions anymore. So we just thought this is pointless. You know, we're, we're going to stop doing this because we're not here to just talk to ourselves. And that's what we're doing. And then over the last year, it just got too dangerous. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you say about how the dialogue changed the whole time. And like, you know, protesters and artists, it's a, art is a means of protest, uh -huh. and a really effective one usually. So it's good to hear that you actually touched base with some people. And then over time, that just deteriorated. So just the change was it's interesting that you've documented that kind of moment in history. Yes, it was definitely a moment and it was a seriously huge deterioration over a course of 15 months, 14 months. It was like the funnest thing we did was the GOP town hall in January of 2016 when all the Republican candidates were there. It was in Nashua, New Hampshire, and it was a blizzard. And David stands on top of the bus and swings a golf club to make the statement about Trump should stick to golf courses. He's doing this in a blizzard, swinging a golf club on top of the bus. Like all the, all the, and, and it's so funny because the men all come over and yell at him about his golf swing and give him shit about his golf swing. It's hilarious, okay? And I'm always like to David, because really they'd rather be up on top of the bus swinging a golf club than inside at boring Trump rally is really the bottom line on that because David's having so much fun up there yelling at people and people yelling at him. It, it's, it's fun. Um, and at that time when Trump was up against all the other GOP candidates, you know, think like Kasich and it was Fiorina and, and Santorum and everyone, everyone was in a great mood because he was just one of many and it was a balanced field. That was a great time. And then what happened, it really got dark. The closer it came to the election, it really got dark. Like we were, we went to a rally in Aston, Maryland and David and I, I think it was like a KKK rally. He said, I think it was, it was Aston, Pennsylvania. He said, they have a big KKK presence there. And we were with the vice, vice was on the bus with us, a, a crew from vice. And they had brought the, the guy doing the story was a black kid. And it got so scary. They were yelling at us, bomb them, kill them. The, oh the, the vice team told the guy to stay on the bus and not get off the bus. 
So then we left the rally because we didn't feel safe. And a group followed us in their cars yelling after the bus. And we pulled over on the side of the road and we're like, what are we going to do? Because the bus has a million miles on it. It only goes seven miles per hour uphill and like 45, 50 miles per hour max. You can't outrace anyone. You can't get away. So we just pulled over and waited and they finally left. But we were really frightened. And that was the scariest, but they got a great like three minute film out of it. <laughs> They're like, this has gotten so many hits. I'm like, I can only imagine because that was the, that was one of the scariest times. And David and I are pretty conservative. We were at some rallies where we'd see huge crowds run, like go sprinting and we just leave. We'd be like, we're not going to be involved in the middle of this. We leave. We just, like if things start going south, we leave so fast. So there were quite a few rallies we left and didn't see what happened after we left. Um, but that was a really scary experience, that, that rally. Well, it, it, it sounds like it gave you some insight into what was coming next. That, uh, some of the insight that a lot of us, you know, had suspicions of what might come next, but you were front lines of what's going to come next with. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's over now, thank goodness. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I know. Well, since we covered social unrest, let's talk COVID now. Okay. COVID. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned that you actually took up writing during this time of COVID. Uh, so would you be willing to share, us, share with us about that? Sure. I am, you know, typical artists have, you know, three other jobs trying to pay my bills. So I'm a freelance copywriter in advertising. Um, so I've been doing that forever. So I do freelance writing. But when COVID hit, I, I kind of didn't have the energy to make art. Something changed in me. But, you know, us creatives, we always have to make something. So I started writing a screenplay about the bus, the Trump bus. And I thought I could teach myself how to do this. So I bought a couple books and read the books and started writing. And then I took the master, I signed up for master class and listened to Aaron Sorkin talk about it and Steve Martin and Ron Howard and tried to do it that way and ended up with the lamest screenplay ever after like five months. So then I took a real class. I signed up for um, a webinar with a real screenwriting teacher from UCLA and there were like 20 kids in the class and really, really learned how to do it. So then I, and I turned the story of the bus into a conspiracy thriller. So it's a fictionalized story about the bus, which is fun um, since everything's so conspiracy with Trump anyway, uh, because I just felt like the story, the bus is only really the background to a story is how I felt. And it needed some, it needed, it needed a better plot. Um, which is what I learned. So it, it originally started to be the real story of the bus, which was the bad one. And then, and now I've turned it into a conspiracy thriller. So I guess I've done with my first formal draft of it. And now I'm moving it on to the second, second draft of it. It's really fun. It's so hard. I mean, I have admiration for anyone that can write a good screenplay because it's not easy. And if anyone tells you it's easy, they're wrong. And it's easy to do a really bad one. <laughs> like I did. <laughs> now I've got a good, I've got a basic beginner one that's like passing beginner probably class. They, they always tell you that like being bad at something is the first step to being good at something. So, you know, <laughs> you need that bad draft to get to the good draft. It's pretty bad. 
<laughs> but you know, it's interesting when you start studying that kind of thing because it so relates to art in so many ways. And I'm thinking, what's easier, doing a painting or writing a screenplay? My temptation is to say it's writing a screenplay because when you make a mistake in a screenplay, you've saved the previous version and you can go back to it. Yeah. When you make a mistake on a painting, you throw it out, it's gone. There's no fixing it and going back to the previous version. So I think that actually writing the screenplay, I would say is easier, but I call it a tie. <laughs> you just have an undo option for when you're writing instead of when you're creating yeah. art. It's the undo. And sometimes when I do my drawings, like the one that says heaven that you have in your gallery, mm -hmm. um, which is the girl with the green skirt, what I find helpful is that that, that that black line that's her foot in that drawing, she has a big strong black line that marks her foot. I had finished that whole drawing except for that black line, but I knew it wasn't done. I'm like, something about this isn't right. This drawing's not complete. And I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. So I take photos of the drawings when they're at that point on my camera, and then I upload them in Photoshop. And then I goof around to see what marks might complete the drawing in my Photoshop. And once That's I figure so that cool. out, then I go back and I do that on the painting. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is helpful. So it's kind of like cheating because you can undo the Photoshop and you don't want to kill the drawing. So it's kind of like the screenwriting thing. You can use your computer to figure out the last thing before you do it. Oh, no, I just no different than tracing paper. Yeah, we, we, we have so many tools at our disposal as artists. I'm like, for heaven's sake, use them. <laughs> it's like, oh, anything that 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 works into the process. Um, I call that valid. So that's not cheating. Yeah, OK. No, not at all. You heard it here, not cheating. You heard it here. It's not cheating. No, that's just using the tools that we have. Um, so what other future projects um, would you like to share with us? Oh, well, let me see. We've got the screenplay to finish, the Trump mm -hmm. signs happening, more running girls are happening, the surfer girl, the Dr. Biden one, uh, maybe the, the black hole one I already did, but I'm not happy with it. Sometimes I redo the same ones. Oh, and I might redo the go, go, go one. Really? Oh, I think I'm, you know how I duped the good luck, bad luck, dumb luck ones? I'm going to dupe it. Okay. I think it's be really interesting. I haven't tried to dupe one in a while. I have one of the running girl series that aren't being shown is a trilogy based on the Christian concept of the Trinity. And um, good, good luck, Jonathan is, is the president's name, Jonathan Goodluck. Good luck. No, it's good luck, Jonathan. And um, was, the, was the president at the time the girls were kidnapped. So what I did was I did one drawing of a running girl that said good luck on it. And then I thought, I'm gonna do something about the Trinity and I'm gonna try and dupe this and copy it and do this exact drawing again on a second sheet of paper. And so I ended up doing three of them. One says good luck, one says bad luck, one says dumb luck. Um, and it references, you know, there's all the symbolism to the world, words. Um, but it was really funny to try and actually draw because the drawings are full of different random marks, the same drawing and dupe it. And they actually looked a lot alike, but different. It was like having a sister that was a twin, but you're dressed differently and you have different personalities kind of thing. So I think I'm going to try and do the go, go, go one again as a little project. Neat. That is such a good exercise. I had an art teacher in college who made us uh, make marks with paint. And then we had to draw those marks. 
and I went a little too Jackson Pollock with mine, so it was <laughs> quite a learning experience. Oh wow! Um, so that that transferring of like trying to copy what you've already done and making it look the same is so interesting. So it's cool that you're gonna do that one too. Yeah, I think so. I, I want to do it in a different palette. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that's gonna be great. Oh yeah. boy. Maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, you have a lot on your on your list of things to accomplish. My goodness, that's absolutely fantastic. And you've given us so much of your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks for the opportunity to show my work. Oh well, awesome gallery. You know, as as I think I, I mentioned to you, um, it has just been amazing and humbling to have artists like yourself come to Riverviews knowing that we're in a pandemic and we're not going to have the usual numbers that we have come and see the work, but you're, you're still giving it 110% to put on the best show for the people who, who are able to make it here and experience the work. So uh, thank you so much for uh, your time and your effort um, under the current circumstances to still bring art to the community. That's huge for us. Um, thank you. Well, thank you. Well, Mary, we have your exhibit online so people can make appointments to see it in person or they can check out riverviews.net and check it with the catalog that we have available. You also have an artist talk that we filmed while you were here. Right. Pretty fun. But, excellent, uh, excellent artist talk. Uh, Mary, that's one of the better artist talks I think I've ever heard. Oh, really? Because I really, after I did it, I was like, oh, well, I mean, what I said. <laughs> I really no. liked it. No. So, so everybody who's listening, please, um, please go on and uh, spend some time watching that artist talk. I thought it was fantastic. Thank and you. your website, your social media, where can people find you? Oh, I just, well, I got locked out of my old Twitter account because I couldn't remember the password and I said, so I'll never get it again. So this week I opened up a new Twitter at curator artist is the Twitter handle. And uh, so follow me there or my website is my name, marymahalikartist.com. All right. Thank you, Mary. Thank Have you. Rest of your Friday. You too. Yes. That was fun. Thanks. Thank you so much, Mary. Take Thanks. care. Bye-bye.